And we're going to start at verse 16, where we left off. It's page 1055 in the, in the Church Bibles. very known, well-known verse, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe it is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that, is, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been done, carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, now as we look at your word, we pray that you'll help us to walk in the light, to trust in the Lord Jesus, to bring glory to you. And Father, that we will hate the deeds of darkness but we will love the light that you bring to us. We pray, Lord, that you speak to us now as we dig into this passage. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Now then, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, most quoted, and uh, I remember years ago we were watching the downhill skiing competition, World Championships on television, when I was about 19 or 20 or something like that, or 21 or 22. And there was somebody holding up a sign with John 3.16 for the television cameras to see. And my father says, oh, somebody's got a message for somebody called John. <laughs> Had no idea at all what was going on. I just smiled. It wasn't the time to pursue it. And so we may think it's the most well-known verse in the Bible. But for many, it means absolutely nothing still. And it's a sad reflection on the world that people do not know God's word. And as Ed goes out and preaches in the open air and people are coming to him, sitting down, asking him, even before they know he's a Christian, that's where the hunger and the thirst for truth is. And people, the Lord is leading people to himself. Now then, in this passage, for God so loved the world. First of all, God is love. We love because God first loved us in John's epistle. God is love. But as we look through this passage, that's not the end of the story. People love to say, God is love, God is love, and it stops there. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, we're told in Hebrews. There's something about the word of God that cuts through to the heart, and that sword of judgment cuts in. And it's when we are pierced in the heart that we can come and experience his love. And when it says, for God so loved the world, it does not mean that God loves 
everybody in the world so much that he's not going to judge them. That's a misconception. We know that. What's it mean by the world? Well, I've read somewhere that the word world is used in seven different ways depending on context in the New Testament. Some might argue eight, some might argue six. I'm not splitting hairs. The point is it's used many different ways. And what does it mean here? Demas, because he loved the world for Sukkot, Paul says. He loves the way of the world. And um, God so loved the world, it doesn't mean the fabric of the world. Here it means every type of people. Every nation, every people, every group, he loves the world, people in the world. That doesn't mean he's going to save everybody, but it does mean that salvation has gone out from just the Jewish people. The fulfillment to Abraham has been completed, that the message has gone out to the whole world in Christ. And that's the context of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now then, this is this phrase, only, only son, volumes have been written about what it means. Okay? The Greek says only begotten. Um, and older translations say only begotten, because that's literally Greek. It can mean one and only, only son. All these are correct translations. But in other places in the Bible, it talks about the sons of God. So how can he be the only son? Or the only begotten son? And this is an interesting point, because when we become Christians, we become sons of God, sons and daughters of God. And then in Job, uh, talks about the angels, refers to them as sons of God. So in a sense, anybody that's in fellowship with the Lord becomes part of his family, and is a son in that sense. But here, when we talk about the Son of God, it's not referring to the Lord Jesus when he became a human being. He didn't become the Son of God when he became a human being. I mean, you can go into the doctrine of the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity if you want to look at it theologically. But what that is saying is that from eternity past, within the Trinity, there is a relationship between the Father and the Son. And when in Philippians it says that Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto, but humbled himself and took on the nature of a slave or a servant in Philippians chapter 2. That illustrates the voluntary relationship between the one we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, referred to as the Son of God, and the Father, even before the creation of the world. And the Holy Spirit also, three. How do you explain the Trinity? Ed, how do you explain the Trinity? Can you explain the Trinity? I try not to Exactly, you try not to. Because if we could explain the Trinity, we'd be putting God inside a box that we built for him. And that would mean our God is too small. If he is God and he's created us, it stands to reason that we are not and do not have the same mental and physical, spiritual capacity as a God that can create the whole universe. He's the creator, we are the created. He reveals to things to us about himself, but we can never say, this little package is God. We can say, these things point towards an enormous God that we understand from the Bible is in some way three and yet one. The only example I can think that gives a handle on it, but as any example falls short, is a flame. 
God is a consuming fire, the Holy Spirit will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire. Fire is often used as an image of one or other of the persons of the Godhead, or all three. If you take a flame, what's it consist of? You've got the flame, you've got the heat, you've got light, and it's all one little bit of fire. And somehow, you can expand it in your own minds, but it's a flame, it's heat, it's light. We can observe those things separately, feel them separately, but yet it's just one. And you can't have one without the other there codependent, if that's the right word, probably not theologically, they're co-existent, not getting into fine things. But within that unity and equality of the Godhead, for some reason, God chooses to have a relationship. God is love. You cannot have love unless there's an object of the love. And so somehow there's this free within the one of Godhead, of the Godhead. And within that, one has taken on the role of son, the other the father, to express the love relationship somehow. That's all I can say. Theologians may argue about it, but this helps me get a handle on what it means for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the eternal son of God, the only begotten from eternity past and eternity. Maybe that's helpful, I hope it is. And I hope somehow it brings us this point, for God so loved the world, because he loves his son, and yet he gave up his son. That God gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we saw earlier, one of the titles, the son of man, the ruler of the eternal kingdom, that is talked about in the book of, of Daniel the final kingdom that will go on for eternal, eternity. And the Lord Jesus is the ruler of that eternal kingdom. And he says, he sent his son that we should have eternal life. It's picking up on that, the eternal kingdom, the eternity with the Lord and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth where he's going to wipe away every tear and make all things new. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the promise here, as we all know, is not about earning our way, but it's trusting what the Lord Jesus, when he was lifted up like the snake in the desert that Moses put on his, on his um, staff. The Lord Jesus lifted up, died, taking our sins. And as we trust in him and believe in that, we can come, be forgiven, and come in fellowship with him to receive the position of being sons and daughters, sons of God, loved the way the Father loves the Son, as if we were pure and holy like the Son. And that is the wonder of the depths of this verse. And as we look at it and think about it, I don't know about you, but for me it just opens up my eyes in awe and wonder to who the Father is, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and how he comes to me, born from above, not of my own efforts, but in his grace for giving me my sin. And all that's tied up in this little verse. So next time you watch some skiing, hold up your placard, John 3.16. But don't just stop there. Tell people what it means, as my father didn't know. Speak about it, you know. We have believed and therefore we have spoken, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've got a message, we have Christ in us. And when Christ is in us, those streams of living water flow out of us and reach the world. 
If you're excited about the Lord Jesus, you will speak about him. How many people here have been at some stage, perhaps now, but some stage in their life where they've been in love? I would hope many of us. Maybe something that comes and goes and passes. But when you're in love and somebody asks you about your boyfriend or girlfriend, do you have to prepare for 45 minutes to speak for 20 minutes about the one you love? No, it just flows out, doesn't it? And when we're in love with the Lord Jesus and receiving his love, we can talk about him. We can talk. We may not have all the theology, but we can talk about him. And that will reach into the hearts of people. And that's what the Muslim world is looking for. It's what the people are looking for. They haven't found peace with God. They need this message. Now then, let's go on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I've always found this a little bit interesting. He doesn't say in order that Christ would save the world. Though we know that Christ is the saviour of the world. But here it says he sent so that the world may be saved through him. In Isaiah, it talks about God being the Savior. In the New Testament, we talk about the Lord Jesus being the Savior. But we're saved through the Lord Jesus, but who's saving us? The Father. Salvation isn't just, oh, Jesus died on the cross for us. God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. It's a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus humbling himself, becoming like a servant, and dying on the cross. In that instance, the Lord Jesus was the passive player. He was the sacrifice. It was pleasing the Father so the Father can receive us. In other ways, the Lord Jesus was very much the active one in leading us to him and showing us the way. And at times it's the Holy Spirit working in us, drawing us to Christ and revealing the Father in us. You can't dissect it out and say, God, the Father does this, Christ does this, and the Holy Spirit does this. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in a way that we can't nail down. But what we do know, he comes to us and works in us. And he sheds abroad his love in our hearts. And didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved? Saved from what? Saved from condemnation, saved from hell, saved from sin, saved from ourselves. All of those. What does saved mean? I love this story that goes about Bishop Ryan, J.C. Ryan, I think he was Bishop of Liverpool, a great evangelical Anglican scholar who wrote some wonderful books on holiness and things, was sitting on the train one day, like a hundred years or so ago, in his bishop's robes, and a little, probably not much more than a teenager, young Salvation Army girl gets in onto the train and sits down opposite him. And this little Salvation Army girl says, excuse me, sir, but are you saved? to Bishop Ryle. And Bishop Ryle apparently answered, it depends what you mean by saved. And he then gave a most glorious exposition from the Bible, over, I don't know how long it took, maybe 20 minutes, of what salvation is. He says, if you mean 
Have I trusted the Lord Jesus and my sins are forgiven? That is one meaning of safe. Or the ongoing daily perseverance that I get in faith from the Lord's salvation working me day by day after I've given my life to the Lord? Or are you talking about when I leave this earth or the Lord Jesus Christ comes and I'm saved in eternity to be with the Lord forever? Salvation has all these three connotations. And he says, and yes, thank you very much, I'm saved in all three of those senses. And can you imagine this young Salvation Army girl boldly addressing this bishop of the church then having this wonderful exposition, expanding her own faith. Saved. That the world might be saved through him. Explore the idea. Don't just stop at the sermon of the evangelist. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, put your hand up and be saved. It's so much deeper than that. You would never do that, I know. <laughs> but you would invite people to come to Christ and come to know the Lord Jesus and find him and then experience him daily and having the hope of glory in our hearts to go and be with him when we die in the next world. All the glorious expanse of this concept of salvation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Go over the page to chapter 5, verse 24. What's it say? Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, remember this morning I was saying, truly, truly, I say to you, it's an oath formula. It means what I'm about to say is of utmost importance and utmost truth. Listen carefully. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Does not come to judgment. The Lord Jesus didn't come when he came to die on the cross to pass judgment, to condemn people. He came to save. And as we come to him and believe that he has come from the Father and the Father has given all judgment to him, we trust that he's taken our sins, then we don't come to judgment. We've crossed over from death to life. Eternal life is here and now, begins now. And the salvation takes us on to the new heavens and the new earth to be with him in eternity where that salvation continues and the eternal life continues. Come to Jesus so that you have eternal life when you die. That's not theological. Come to the Lord Jesus and trust in him so you can start that eternal life now and transition to another phase of it when we die. It's beautiful. Salvation is assurance now. We are saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Why not? Because all condemnation for our sins has been put on Christ and taken off us. Because, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. If we are sinners, Old Testament makes it perfectly clear that sinners need salvation. And if we're not receiving the salvation that the Lord gives us, we stand condemned already. We're born into sin. Surely I've been, was born in sin, conceived in sin, David says in Psalm 51. <coughs> we start off with a tendency to sin. It's the total, the sin of 
total depravity, original sin, whatever you like to call it. We don't have to learn how to sin. We are sinners. And left to ourselves, we go that way. And the world without Christ falls apart. Whoever does not believe in him, has not received the forgiveness, is condemned already. On Judgment Day, it says in, in um, Revelation that Christ sat on the great white throne and books were opened. And everybody's deeds that were recorded in the books and they were condemned according to their de deeds. And another book was opened, the Lamb's Book of Life. And if anyone's name was not found in that book, they were cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What we've done already in our life condemns us. But when the Lord Jesus says, I've saved you and writes you in his book of salvation, those books of condemnation are put aside, cancelled. You are saved. And he says, welcome. And then, in, in Corinthians it says, in terms of lawsuits within the church, that little throwaway line, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Christians will judge angels. How much more able should we be to judge simple matters within people in the church? We judge angels. It won't be the angels that are following the Lord. It'll be the fallen angels. Our salvation, what the Lord Jesus did on the cross for us, when he was dying on the cross, he was showing the world that sin has to be punished. And unless our sin is placed on him, sinners are condemned. The very fact that Christ died on the cross is condemnation to every fallen angel. It's not just salvation for us, it's a declaration of condemnation of sin. Unless we have a saviour, we are condemned. And so every fallen angel is already condemned by the cross. And when we come to heaven and say, Christ and his cross is my only plea, that's the only reason I can go into heaven, is Christ died for me on the cross, that in itself is passing a judgment on angels. And when in, um, Judith says, you know, debating with Satan about the body of Moses, the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you. The word rebuke doesn't mean to tell off, it means to pronounce a judgment in, that, in, that, in the Greek concept text. You are judged. The angel says to Satan, where? On the cross. So when the Lord was sending his only son to die on the cross, he wasn't just saving us. Part of that salvation is the eternal condemnation of every power that sets itself up in opposition to the truth. Every knowledge, all of that. And the root of it, the father of lies, is condemned. The depths of salvation on the cross is so much more far-reaching and just say, hallelujah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. That's a wonderful part of it. I'm not belittling that. But grow into it, explore it more, and be overwhelmed by who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done for us. And verse 19, and this is the judgment. Does it say men are evil? No, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Light has come into the world. It's obviously a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
Light has come into the world. The way of truth, the way of freedom, the way of salvation, the way to find peace in our hearts is the Lord Jesus. But, humanly speaking, men, women, ourselves, we love the darkness. We want our evil deeds, our sins to be kept hidden away. We shy away from anything that would expose us. And that's again our original sin, the depravity that's deep down in our hearts. That when we look at it, we find it there. And that is the judgment. When we realize that we don't want our deeds to be revealed in the light and do nothing about it, we're basically saying, I deserve judgment and that's the way I'm going. We're judged already. Now then, I'm going to ask the awkward question, aren't I? As Christians, majority of us here, I hope, what are we hiding? What are we hoping people won't see? What do we not want to bring into the light? We can talk about this glorious salvation and say, yes, yes, yes. Let that light shine into our hearts. What's there? I told you this morning, when I, one day, years ago, when I was looking in the depths of my heart, and I realized I really resented the Lord Jesus and his control of my life. When I was a missionary, I denied it for so long, yet when the Lord shone that light into my heart and I saw it and I realized it and couldn't hide it anymore from myself, it was really humbling. And I go back to that and say, Lord, this is what I am. By your grace, take me on from here. But we need to keep on looking at ourselves, not relying on yesterday's faith or last week's faith or what we were last year. It's very easy for me, having preached a lot, over the years to be able to trot out a message. I could do that and it'd be okay. But if I'm not examining myself and bringing everything I see into the light of the Lord and telling him about it and confessing it when I'm sitting there just before I get up, then all I'm doing is quenching the Holy Spirit and mouthing words. It might be good teaching, but it won't be presenting the Lord in all his glory. And there's a difference. And if the church is going to be salt and light in the world, we have to look at ourselves regularly, again and again, and say, what, Lord, today? Where have I messed up? What is there? What is the barrier? What is hindering the living waters flowing out from me to the world? What is it? The old man is being corrupted, we're told in Ephesians. The old one is being corrupted. The longer in the world, the more of the rot of the world we learn. You know, if we lock ourselves away in a monastery and only pray, I can guarantee those priests still struggle with sin, even though they're not in the world in the same sense. How much more when it's facing our face every day? Do we need to keep coming back to the Lord and seeing how the world is taking us? Love not the world nor anything in the world. For the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of the heart, as you mentioned earlier. Was it you? One of the, who was it that was mentioning when was it was it you when we were talking? Yes. Those things in the world, they're coming into us, the signs, because you deserve it. All over the place. No, we don't deserve it. We're sinners. We deserve wrath. But by grace, we're given all this beautiful salvation. 
don't quench the Holy Spirit by allowing things to stay in the darkness. We love the darkness. There are things. I don't know who you should tell about them. Maybe it's right to tell another Christian. Maybe it's right to tell the Lord about them. But whatever you do, don't pretend they're not there. Don't keep burying them and letting them fester. Bring it into the light. Walk in the light. Because the condemnation is that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. We can all relate to that. We do something wrong and hope, or hope they don't find out. We hate the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you can get to your place in life where you're not ashamed of anything that you do or say or think, or you have full confidence that everything you do is what the Lord wants you to be doing in this world, then there'll be absolutely nothing holding you back in your fellowship with the Lord. Now sadly, I don't suppose there's any of us that live like that 24 hours a day for one day which is why we need the Lord. Which is why the Lord comes and why he died for us on the cross and why we need, as Bishop Ryan says, we need that salvation, ongoing salvation, daily. The daily preservation, the daily encouragement to walk in the light. Now as mature Christians or new Christians, we need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of it day by day. Naturally, we hate the light but light has come into the world. And if we do not want to bring ourselves into that light, we are bringing condemnation on us. For a non-Christian, that condemnation is eternal. For a Christian, that temporal judgment, will, the Lord will deal with with discipline to steer us back to the truth. He's gracious and able to forgive. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But never think just because the Lord loves the world that he doesn't hate sin in us and when we start turning back to the darkness believe me he will work in you to try and bring you back the more we cooperate with that and acknowledge it the less painful it will be but his goal is to bring us to heaven in a state that's fit to be with him and he started that in Christ and he was faithful who started a good work in us will bring it to completion. And that is the two-edged sword. Come into the light and that bring it to completion is the glorious growing in holiness and in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. If we start to rebel and turn away, then we find the other side of that sword, the discipline of the Lord to steer us back. As a non-Christian, we come to that point where the Lord brings us and the Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to salvation. We commit ourselves to the Lord. And then daily, as we walk with the Lord, the Holy Spirit is the voice behind, this is the way, walk in it. Convicting us of our sin in our heart. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, show us our sins, so we can bring it to the Lord, deal with it, and then have that freedom to move on in the Lord. And then eventually, the fulfillment of that glorious salvation is when he takes us to be with him forever. And we'll no longer be burdened by our old self. We'll be able to live in eternity in the freedom 
of fellowship with the Lord Jesus forever. And that's where we're heading. And that's the joy. And that's if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the effector of our faith in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll not get entangled by the sin that so easily entangles, but we'll walk in victory with the Lord who always leads us in triumphant procession. And the world will see this and they'll come and they'll want to ask, why have we got peace in this messed up world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal glorious life in fellowship with the Father and the Son.